Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and war. Today's topic is the urban battle of Gaza City. Our speaker is Anthony King, who is a professor of war studies at the University of Exeter in the UK. Tony has written a recent book entitled Urban Warfare in the 21st Century, and he spoke previously on this podcast 18 months ago about the war in Ukraine. Today, I want to learn from Tony about what will happen when the Israeli ground war begins, what the street battles will look like, and what the implications of the hostages will be to the military strategy. I want to understand if Hamas can rearm after their weapons supplies run low, what the relevant lessons learned from the Russia-Ukraine war, particularly as it relates to the urban conflict in Gaza, and what the historical experience from similar city battles in Algiers, Stalingrad, and more recently in Aleppo and Iraq. I also want to understand what the Gaza endgame will be to this awful destruction and terrible loss of life on both sides. Buckle up. Tony, please begin with your six-minute remarks. 7th of October 2023, about 3,000 Hamas fighters infiltrated Israel to execute the worst terrorist atrocity that Israel has ever experienced, and one which in population size is something like 10 times the scale of 9-11. So 1,400 Israeli principally civilians were killed, 200 taken hostage. By population basis, that would be in the US about 40,000 civilians killed. Today, we are right on the edges of what looks like another major signature urban battle of the early 21st century. Israeli ground forces have quickly surrounded the Gaza Strip and they've already begun to probe into Gaza along various avenues of advance. And that has been preceded by two and a little bit weeks of very significant air bombardment and, of course, rocket strikes coming out of Gaza back into Israel. But the point is, what is that urban battle going to look like and what are its political and military implications? And there are really serious precedents here. If we look at the last 20 years, most of the intense fighting and most of the intense battles in recent civil and indeed interstate wars have focused on a major urban fight. And the upcoming Battle of Gaza has immediate precedence in terms of the Battle of Mosul 2016, the Battle of Raqqa 2017, the Battle of Marawi in the Philippines 2017, the Battle of Aleppo 2014-15-16 and various other fights. State forces determined that they would enter an urban area held by a non-state opponent. And in each case, what we saw was successful operations, but vast levels of collateral damage and civilian casualties. The urban battle that is approaching in Gaza is likely to take a similar format to those battles that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years. What will happen when the Israelis' ground war begins? What will urban warfare look like? And how will the Israelis save the hostages? What is IDF strategy? What's the operation? How's it going to be organized? How's it going to be designed? Now, at the fundamental level, the IDF have two choices, essentially. 
the mission objective is the military and political elimination of Hamas. Israel has been totally explicit about it. So option one is a complete urban clearance and essentially some kind of urban hold after that. The equivalent there would be something like the Battle of Mosul, where US and Iraqi coalition forces fought for nine months to take and clear and secure Mosul from ISIS. That's one option. It's really unpalatable. The scale of the problem is huge. Israel, I think, probably don't have enough troops to do that. They've probably got about 100,000 combat troops, especially if combat opens up on other fronts in the north, coming out of Hezbollah out of Lebanon, and security operations in West Bank, which seems to be utterly, utterly inevitable. I think they'll struggle to have enough combat power to do a complete clearance. And the politics of it are really difficult. The second option is a more limited option where they identify key centres of Hamas military and political power, headquarters, arms caches, concentrations of fighters, rocket launching sites, rocket and IED manufacturing sites, etc. And more limited thrusts into those areas, I think that's more likely. There's a very intricate tunnel network which has been built over the last 40 years in Gaza, which the IDF are going to have to clear at some stage. So the scale of the problem is really difficult. Now, say they do a series of raids. One of the raids might be to clear hostages. Hamas are bound to resist this. They are bound to fortify, emplace lots of IEDs, weaponize the civilian population, use suicide vehicles, suicide bombers to slow down, block the IDF's advance. And therefore, the advance will have to use heavy equipment, bulldozers, of which the IDF have many, tanks, mechanized vehicles, all supported by air and artillery strikes to breach the fortified buildings and the barricades that Hamas will construct. And they'll have to do this on the surface of Gaza, at street level, and they'll have to simultaneously do it at subsurface level as well. Because if they go into a street to take out a target and they don't simultaneously clear the network of tunnels below them, Hamas fighters will either retreat from those positions easily or worse, infiltrate behind the IDF and execute actions in the rear of those attacks. The military prospects are difficult because even if IDF go for targeted raids on a small axis into a defined objective and then withdraw, it's still going to be a very heavy fight. Now, the hostage situation complicates the whole matter again because it would be difficult to rescue hostages in that situation. First of all, that it's a slow operation, and so Hamas are like just murder the hostages they hold or, even worse, put IEDs on them. It's happened in battles in the past. Hamas terrorists may exit Gaza City and blend in with civilians in their exodus. It feels like a -a whack-a-mole situation where the Israelis will continually have to hunt down Hamas in the city and then later in the countryside. If Israel don't go for a complete anti-ISIS clear and occupation, it absolutely gives Hamas fighters the possibility of retreating into other urban strongholds, to hiding in tunnels and melting back into the civilian population. And if you look at the space of Gaza, it's an area of 365 square kilometres. 
it's got a population of 2 million. It's a very densely populated, urbanised area. The opportunities for sanctuary and concealment and hiding are all but infinite for Hamas fighters. So although a series of punctuated raids would, without question, seriously degrade Hamas capability, precisely for the reasons you said, they can melt back into the civilian population, melt back into the urban geography, I think represents a really significant military problem for Israel and therefore encourages a complete clearance operation. But the complete clearance operation has all of the military problems that I've described. So the ground operation presents a very significant military conundrum. This ground invasion will happen in front of TV cameras. We'll watch it in real time from every angle. Both civilians and Israeli soldiers will be killed in dramatic and tragic ways. When the soldiers are killed by suicide bombers and IEDs, Israeli soldiers are going to demand aerial strikes to flatten buildings to rubble to shield their advances. I expect the Israelis to be cautious at first and then quickly become more aggressive with their lethal firepower if Israeli casualty rates are high. Let's take a situation where they identify, for instance, a Hamas command and control center with a lot of computer terminals, and a load of weapon caches, you know, a proper sort of center. An Israeli brigade is tasked to go in, clear two streets to get to that objective and then raise it to the ground and essentially kill everybody in it. Even if they achieve that, there will be Israeli casualties, which will, as you say, intensify the situation and likely demand more escalation from them. But here's the point. Even if they were completely successful in that, on the informational political level, it's likely to be a defeat for them. And we've already seen this in that Hamas, Palestinian, Arabic and wider Muslim states are already opposed to the Israeli ground intervention and already making, in some cases, plausible claims about breaches of the laws of armed conflict and international humanitarian law, especially the latter. And those calls will become more and more strident as the urban battle intensifies. The IDF will get into a situation where the closer their military objectives come, the further away the political objectives will be the international landscape looks extremely unappetizing for Israel as this offensive goes on. But also at a transnational level, where I think once the ground attack starts, we've already seen a lot of demonstrations across cities across the world, in the West, in the US, in Europe, and some very serious protests which have anti-Semitic elements in them, generating political tensions in other Western capitals and Western cities, I think those are likely to intensify. So in addition to regional international tension, there's you know real risk of very significant political tensions across urban spaces elsewhere, where Palestinian, Arabic and Jewish and Israeli diasporic populations are located. I mean, London is a key location here in terms of both populations. There's many others as well. So I think the sort of wider informational and political implications of the ground operation are deeply troubling, frankly. And also deeply troubling because it's very difficult to see how Israel, which is still being rocketed by Hamas, can avoid taking some action. So it's a very dangerous crisis, in my view. 
explain the end game. What can Israel do to make their local population feel safe? I must admit, it does look difficult to see what a solution would be in Gaza without actually occupying Gaza. This attack, as ISIS attacks before did, has set the Israeli government a problem, which is essentially an insurgent force is so powerful that it can't be resisted at a lower level intensity. It demands a complete clearance of an urban stronghold. But a complete clearance of an urban stronghold is pointless unless you subsequently occupy the fortresses from which that insurgent force mounts its attack and in which its political base is located. And that is a long-standing historical problem and a long-standing historical kind of truth. Israel won't want to occupy the Gaza Strip. They've had experience of that, 1967 to 2005. It was a totally unsatisfactory and self-defeating process. And I don't think they'll be allowed to occupy the Gaza Strip. What does the end state look like? It's very, very unclear. Israel don't seem to have any Palestinian partners who could actually step into the vacuum of Hamas to administer Gaza and the West Bank in place of Hamas. And indeed, the military actions seem to have completely radicalised the Palestinian populations, even organisations that aren't allied to Hamas. So, you know, the only option, unless it's an Israeli invasion and occupation, is a proxy partner Palestinian political organisation takes over. And that seems unlikely. So it seems to me a very conflicted situation. I mean, Israel is not helped here by the fact that, of course, in the past, Palestinian organisations have been very difficult to unite the Palestinian opposition to Israel, the Palestinian movements of independence have been difficult to unite. I mean, I certainly would personally absolutely supported the Oslo process to state solution. Even before this war started, this is where Israel, in terms of a longer term political solution, have some culpability. The settlements into the West Bank make a Palestinian independent state impractical. So going back to Oslo and a two state solution, I am sceptical about, and not least because where's the Palestinian political party that takes that solution forward? It can't be Hamas after this. Life depends on a social compact. Citizens pay taxes to educate other people's children and pay for other people's health care and retirement. But that social compact ends when their neighbors kidnap their grandparents and behead their children. If you cannot live with your neighbors, then you drive them out. If your neighbor bulldozes your border fence and uses gliders to machine gun 250 kids at a concert, then you need a bigger buffer. Critics of Israel have said exactly that's what they intend to do, is they intend to drive the Gazan population out of Gaza and so that you get a buffer zone. You know, it is a possible strategy. I think it's an unlikely one, but it's a possible strategy. It's against international humanitarian laws. It's against laws of armed conflict, acting against civilians in that way, forcibly. And certainly, I don't think... Gulf states, Middle Eastern states would tolerate Israel sort of driving Palestinian populations into where? Into Egypt? Egypt are not going to accept Palestinian refugees. They have been part of the effective blockade of Gaza for the last decade or more. So that is a kind of theoretical solution, one that I wouldn't accept, I would in fact deplore, 
the political, military, and legal practicalities of it are just not possible. I think and hope the Israelis aren't thinking on those lines. I mean, I think the inferences I make from Israeli statements is they want to separate Hamas leadership, which doesn't have total support among the Palestinian population by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's an extremist, radical organisation, and somehow create some relationship with the Palestinian population in Gaza, um, but with a leadership, we just don't know what that would look like. Separating ethnic people is not something new. There's a long history of it. In 1948, Muslim countries pushed out their Jewish citizens to move to Israel. In 1922, Greece and Turkey were at war. And as part of the settlement, the Greeks living in Turkey moved to Greece and the Turks living in Greece moved to Turkey. Later in the 70s, Cyprus was similarly partitioned. Population exchanges were part of the creation of the modern Indian and Pakistani states. When populations cannot live together peacefully, they separate. Partitions have happened in the past, and partitions will happen in the future. I mean, Belfast remains a partition city. There are many examples of political settlements that become necessary because essentially people become exhausted with the fighting. And I mean, that's certainly the best that we could hope in Israel, a sort of unsatisfactory political settlement between Israel and Palestinians on the lines of Belfast or indeed, you know, the precedents you've given, Cyprus and Turkey, Pakistan and India. The local circumstances will make that difficult. The issue is a regional one in which all of the other actors, all of the major Gulf states and Middle Eastern states are intimately involved in a conflict situation. What you described in the upcoming Gaza City ground invasion is that the block-by-block fighting will turn the urban environment into rubble. Live footage will show buildings with civilians getting obliterated. We will see Israeli soldiers getting killed by snipers and suicide bombers. Every day, further escalation. It will be hell. Hamas and civilians will blend in together in these refugee camps that require humanitarian assistance. There will be enormous pressure put on Egypt to help these people. There will be enormous pressure put on Egypt to open its doors to help if the world and its local population demand it. There'll be a lot of fighting. There will be a significant exodus of the civilian population, although, in fact, Hamas has and will continue to try and block that exodus. I think there will be refugees that will force their way over into the Egyptian border. I think that's right. I think at the end of a three to six month period, there'll be a hideous end to the operation, totally unsatisfactory, where Israel will kind of claim victory. They'll have killed a lot of Hamas fighters. They'll have destroyed quite a lot of infrastructure. There'll be refugees over the border for sure. But they will then, I would argue, they won't occupy Gaza. They'll leave Gaza with most of the civilian population still there, although there'll be large refugee population to the south and over into the Egyptian border. Now, the question then is, though, will that spark something more serious, more regional? I think the trouble is that it's very likely to have a reaction quite quickly in terms of Hezbollah in the north. So I'd expect pretty significant fighting of some sort, even if it's a series of rocket exchanges, and some attacks staged from the West Bank. How involved are Iran going to get in supporting those issues? But I think your image of what Gaza will look like after three months, not inaccurate. 
I don't see a cleanliness of a partition where there's a buffer zone, et cetera. So I'm much more sceptical. I mean, I'm open to suggestion. I'm open to hope, but I'm much more sceptical. George W. Bush, during the Iraq War, landed an aircraft carrier to announce victory, but it wasn't. You said after three months of fighting that Israel would declare victory. But the next day when rockets are fired at Tel Aviv and everyone's back in those bomb shelters, no one's going to believe the prime minister declaring victory. How does this end if rockets keep firing across the border? I actually struggle to see where this does end because the opponents of Israel, so especially Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and their backers don't have to do very much to keep the fighting going. A few rockets every so often, a few terrorist atrocities every so often uh, keep the conflict alive. But on the flip side, Israel don't seem to me to be powerful enough to impose a kind of Roman peace on the situation, which is the other way, unfortunately, wars end, that one of the sides imposes. That's what the Assad regime effectively did in Syria. They with their Russian backers, imposed a kind of Pax Romana, killing everyone who was opposed to them and suppressing everyone else. But I don't see Israel being powerful enough to do that, nor do I see an international actor, US, Russia is, of course, completely out of the question, or China, effectively enforcing as political settlement that's unsatisfactory for each party. I just think it's going to be very difficult to resolve this situation its implications are really serious and profound precisely because of that, because it's not obvious how even with a military defeat you would reconcile the sides. Israel has another limitation. They drafted all their able-bodied men between the ages of 21 and 40. They can't keep these men out of the workforce for many months. The lack of manpower will undermine the domestic economy. They need to end this war quickly, which means that a slow, careful approach has to be abandoned for a fast, aggressive military conflict, which isn't good for anybody. How is time a limitation in this urban battle? Time is the issue. I mean, Israel is unusual in that it's got, relative to its population, a mass citizen force, though actually the Israeli defense force is a lot smaller than it was 50 years ago, relative to its population. The Israeli population has basically doubled. The IDF is basically the same tide as it was 40 years ago. And for urban warfare, this is really difficult because they are labor-intensive operations. And absolutely that, it forces this conundrum, it forces Israel down a rapid series of urban assaults. I can't believe that the Hamas leaders and their Iranian backers you know, quite as clever as we think. They've set a strategic problem to Israel and questioned the security of Israel in a way that I think is really very challenging, very profound. Did they know what they were doing? Probably not. They probably just wanted to kill some Israelis and hopefully kill some Israeli soldiers as well, but they killed a lot of civilians because they're easier targets. But much like 9-11, I'm not sure that Osama bin Laden had any idea of the ramifications of a successful attack of that order. That doesn't sound right to me. The senior management of Hamas must have known that if they killed 1,500 civilians, that Israel would declare war and destroy Gaza City. Osama bin Laden must have known that if the World Trade Center was knocked down, America would attack the Middle East. Japan certainly knew 
that the U.S. would attack them after Pearl Harbor. So they're going to retaliate, and this is going to be absolutely great for us because everybody will hate Israel, we'll get massive international support, and because we're in Gaza and we've got all these tunnel systems, we'll probably be able to sustain ourselves militarily and politically. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll prepare our informational psychological operations to exploit all of those attacks already. The danger for us is Saudi Arabia realigning with Israel. This attack and the subsequent reaction will make it completely impossible. So we'll amplify the informational effects so that can never happen. And therefore, the benefit of this is the Hamas leadership narrowly defined and Iran, which ensures that a potentially threatening reconfiguration of the Middle East doesn't happen and everyone reorientates itself effectively behind Iran against Israel and its US slash Western backers. So if I was Hamas leadership, that's where I'd be. And what's happened is exactly what they predicted. What are the lessons learned from the Ukrainian urban battles that apply to Gaza? So the Battle of Kyiv occurred from the 24th of February to about the 1st of April. It was the first phase of that operation. And it's the one that's most similar to what the Israeli Defence Force face in Gaza. What are we to learn from that? The attacking force needs overwhelming military power, and especially it needs air superiority to prevail in the actual tactical battle. And here, the Israeli Defence Force definitely has that capability. It has much more capable military forces. Russia had 15,000 troops against a city of 2 million. The Israeli Defence Force has probably, this is a guess, I'm thinking about 100,000 against a much smaller force but an urban area of 2 million. But they've got total air superiority over that city. So their combat power is much more significant. Russia lost the Battle of Kyiv with disastrous strategic effects. I would argue Russia lost the Battle of Kyiv, so it lost the Ukrainian war. And I mean that seriously in the sense that it lost the Ukrainian war because the objective of the Ukrainian war was to destroy the Zelensky government. It failed because it lost the Battle of Kyiv. Go forward to the Battle of Gaza. Militarily, Israel won't be defeated in the Battle of Gaza. But can it affect a strategic victory in this battle to destroy Hamas in perpetuity and secure the security of Israel in perpetuity? I think it can't begin to do it. I mean, had Russia won the Battle of Kyiv, do we think Russia would have taken over Ukraine? No. There would have been a massive insurrection, a massive insurgency. It was fighting a battle that ultimately it couldn't win. And the same may be the truth in Gaza as well. How will Hamas rearm when its ammunition and rockets are used up? They'll somehow get arms smuggled to them by Iran. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it? that a strip that's supposedly been blockaded for years had stockpiled, 2,000 rockets were fired in the first hour of the attack on 7th of October. And yet nobody knew. So somehow Hamas have been smuggling in 
levels of equipment we can't even imagine, presumably with Iranian Hezbollah support, for months and years. And I have no doubt that even under Israeli bombardment and massive surveillance, human ingenuity will find a way of smuggling more arms into them. And the point here is that they don't need that much weaponry to sustain a strategic objectives, which is merely to show that Israel is insecure. In Iraq, ISIS was able to recruit fanatics from all over the world. Will pro-Palestinian soldiers from outside of the Gaza Strip join the fight? I think it's very likely. I think what's more threatening in terms of international security, international stability, is I think related Islamicist groups, they will stage acts of resistance of more or less intensity across particularly Western cities and capitals. Hamas has 200 hostages. How do hostages change the urban warfare strategy? ISIS had hostages in various places. It's a long-standing terrorist practice. Will it be decisive in this case? No, I don't think it will. I think it complicates the politico-military calculation for Israel, especially because Hamas has not received the criticism that it might have done for abducting civilian hostages. The scale of the hostage-taking is of a level like Boko Haram have done. Obviously, this is a scale that Israel hasn't faced, and it will be a difficult sell for the Netanyahu government but I can't see the hostages being a massive calculation in what they choose militarily. I don't see it constraining them in the way that hostages have constrained states in the past. We've discussed 21st century urban battles, but they don't really change much over time. So what can we learn from the most famous urban battles to inform us about what will happen in Gaza? There's many continuities back to ancient urban fighting. I mean, back to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans, the Israeli siege of Gaza 2023. There's many similarities. What are the similarities? The problem is this with urban fighting. You've got to breach fortifications. You've got to clear into those fortifications and then destroy your enemy behind those fortifications. So If the Israelis are going to mount an operation in Gaza, as the Romans did in Jerusalem in 70 AD, they're going to have to breach into it. That's going to require huge levels of firepower. And then they're going to have to have the forces to enter those breaches to clear the fortified positions that Hamas have. But the urban fight of today is a distinct battlescape. What I say is the actual format, the geography, the topography of the battle has a different format. Although some of the techniques, the basic problem... You've got to breach, you've got to enter, you've got to clear, you've got to secure. All of those things are the same. But the way that's done in the 21st century is very different. First of all, air power is implicated inside the battle, which is not true in the past. The city's now so big that they envelop the forces. And so effectively, instead of the cities being enveloped by the armies, armies are enveloped by the city, which means that the forces are engaged not in a siege across the entire city, but these micro-fights, these micro-sieges inside the city itself, 
for particular buildings, particular blocks. So although many of the techniques are old, 20th century, we might even say they're ancient, the actual geometry of the fight becomes different. It now resonates out across a global urban archipelago in a way that was not true even in the 20th century. So one of this is just the rise of digital global communications. But the other is also the heterogenization, the increasing ethnicization of cities across the world. So there are diasporas from Gaza located right across the world in other urban areas, enclaves of those Arabic Palestinian diasporas, and also Jewish diasporas and Israeli diasporas. So the urban battle of the 21st century has a very strange anatomy. It's highly localised at the point of the fighting, but also simultaneously transnationalised at the same time. I'd like to do a case study of urban warfare with the civil war in Algiers in 57. At that time, Algeria was part of France, not a colony, but like a state, like Hawaii in the U.S. There were a million ethnic French the so-called Pied-Noir, living in Algeria, as well as 8 million Muslims. The FLN, which was a group that wanted Algerian independence, engaged in terrorism. France had to employ 300,000 soldiers to win the peace. Tell us about urban warfare between France and its local Muslim population in Algiers. What we use historical comparison for is not to say what's the same, and what teaches us COD lessons on how to act now, it really instructs us what's different and how to be sensitive to the current environment. And you've put your finger absolutely upon it. Point is about Algiers, one of the key things about it in the Battle of Algiers, in a military sense, the French won the Algerian war. They cleared the FLN out of Algiers, and then they cleared them out of Algeria with the Shai plan and the deployment of, you know, the systematic plan of clearances out into the countryside. In a military sense, they defeated the FLN, but they did it in such a manner that it was just totally unsustainable. And sustaining a colony in Algeria beyond the late 50s was completely impossible politically, economically for the French. So they militarily won it. But notice how they did it. They had no concerns for the legal requirements. For the benefit of the audience... During the Algerian Civil War, French paratroopers employed the aggressive use of torture to capture the leaders of the FLN terrorist group. The ongoing war led to riots in Paris and divisions in France. The government fell, and de Gaulle took over in a non-constitutional way. De Gaulle later called a plebiscite in Algeria, and the Muslims voted in the majority for independence. Within a year, a million French Algerians who had lived in Algeria for nearly a century moved to France along with hundreds of thousands of Algerian Muslims who had supported the French in the Civil War. The metropolitan capital, France, could actually let it go, even though it generated a revolt among the military itself. They could let it go. Israel has no choice here. It must defend its security. And also, it is constrained by international law in a way that French paratroopers, the famous French parachute division, was not in the Battle of the Casbah and the Battle of Algiers. So absolutely, it's got a necessity, but also a legal constraint that make the problem much more complicated than the French faced. Normally, I end each podcast with a note of optimism. 
In this case, let's go a different route. In situations like this, we often catastrophize war and urban battles. Today, Belfast is a peaceful and livable city. Can this battle result in a lasting peace? An urban battle of the type we're about to see, I think, is going to be very intense and brutal. If we're lucky, it might show to both combatants that there is no resolution through military means. And so after however many months of fighting, it may be that two populations become so exhausted that they sort of collapse into an unhappy and unsatisfactory peace. And I think, frankly, that's the best that we can hope. The battle burns itself out into a unsatisfactory stasis. It doesn't ignite a wider regional conflict and that both parties crawl themselves to a table to work out an unsatisfactory settlement, but a settlement in which perhaps civilians aren't being killed or maybe not being killed in quite such large numbers. The optimism must be tempered with a level of realism slash pessimism. We have seen that in exhaustion in certain places. In Syria, in a way, the war faded with exhaustion eventually, and Assad took most of the country back, but there's large areas of autonomous areas for the Kurds, etc., which have become de facto part of a sort of quasi-Kurdish principality. So I think that's the most that we can hope for. Unsatisfactory peace will force the international community to think through the Israeli-Palestinian problem in a different way. I think that's the most that we might hope for. Thanks to Tony for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast subject was putting Patent on trial. Our speaker was Julian Jackson, who is an emeritus professor of modern French history at Queen Mary at the University of London. Julian is one of the preeminent scholars of Vichy France. He has written extensively about France in the Second World War and has published an important biography of Charles de Gaulle. We discussed Julian's new book, France on Trial, The Case of Marshal Patin. I care about this topic because my grandparents and my mom lived in hiding for years in Vichy France during the Second World War because as Jews, they feared being sent to the concentration camps. Political trials of former heads of state happened frequently. Marshal Patin collaborated with the Nazis and was arrested and tried immediately after the Germans surrendered. Julian discussed the crimes of Vichy and its leader's responsibility in the roundup of the French Jews. I now want to make a plug for next week's podcast with my college roommate, Josh Sovan, who is a partner at Paul Weiss who focuses on antitrust. The Biden administration is attacking big tech and are trying to change the business practices of Amazon and Google. I want to learn from Josh why the FTC has moved away from maximizing consumer welfare and instead is determined to oppose corporate size and power. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.